They say that we're not supposed to speak in generalities, but I think it's fair, fairly safe to say that all families are complicated. <laughs> the relationship we have with those few people who share our unique genetic code and ancestry, or the families into which we were adopted or married or welcomed are often in some way shaped by strife and conflict. That doesn't deny the good times of joy-filled memories of loved ones and birthday parties and holidays, family trips, and this morning we celebrated the baptism of a new young life, or even the simple pleasures of a good meal shared around the common table. But it also doesn't erase the levels of complexity and the history of turmoil that so frequently runs below the surface among us and our kin. In every culture across the globe, parents and siblings make up the primary community, the fundamental building block of society that teaches and nurtures and in the best occasions loves us into being the person that God has intended us to be. But families are also made up of complex human beings, individuals with their own unique needs and experiences, dreams, pains, and struggles. And when you get all those people together, they create a unique web, a, a system of pattern of behavior and communication with each other that can at the very least be complicated, if not in some cases violent and abusive. Whether your family looked like the Cleavers or the Huxtables or the Huangs or even the Simpsons, each, even the Simpsons, each of us has a story or 12 or 20 about how our families often disappointed us and did not love us in the way that God intended. Amen? Amen. If your experience of family has left you wounded or with moments of regret, know that you are in good company. The Bible is full of stories of disappointing, disastrous, and dysfunctional family relations. From the beginning, we witness marital strife when Adam blames his wife Eve for convincing him to do the thing that God told him not to do. And as soon as they are thrown out of the Garden of Eden, their son Cain kills his brother Abel. Later in Genesis, Isaac and Rebekah conceive twins and they are at odds with each other even within their mother's womb. And then when they grow up, the younger brother swindles his older brother Esau out of his birthright. And the legacy of brother's animosity against brother gets passed down to Joseph's generation. There are no perfect families, none in the Bible and none in life outside of the Bible. These are all stories of human frailty and failings and we are just barely into the first book of Holy Scripture. The passage that we read today, that Lee read for us, is just a snapshot in Joseph's life, but it's also the pinnacle. It's the, very, it's the story of a complicated relationship that he has with his family. Many of us know about the song of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, but listen to the story behind the musical. Joseph was the youngest of Jacob's 12 sons, and because he was born when Jacob was very, very old, Joseph became his favorite and everybody knew it. 
His 11 brothers grew increasingly jealous of this kid. At 17, Joseph had a series of dreams that he would one day rule over his father and brothers. And then when he told them this, it only provoked their hatred even more. Even to the point that they conspired to kill him. And in a show of compassion, his brother Reuben talked them out of it. But while Reuben was away, his brother sold him into slavery, which eventually landed him in Egypt. The brothers lied to Jacob, saying that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, and they cast the coveted robe, ripped and bloodied, at his father's feet. And you thought your siblings were bad. (laughs) Fast forward in time, and famine has spread throughout the region, and Joseph's ability to interpret dreams had made Egypt rich, and it earned him the role of the governor of the region. The brothers went to Pharaoh to buy food for their family survival and they didn't recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. He exacted some small revenge by manipulating his brothers emotionally, but in the end, it was all revealed that he was there. In chapter 45, it begins, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. And he wept loudly so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Joseph is the hero in the story. He's the protagonist. And pastors and professors like to focus on Joseph as this agent of God's providence, of a a fulfillment of God's promise to the ancestors, and a symbol of God's forgiveness and reconciliation. But what of his brothers? What's it like being confronted again by your greatest sin? Your biggest offense and your deepest pain that you thought you'd buried Long, long ago. Not many of us want to relive the misdeeds of our youth or the things that we said or did in anger to cause another pain and suffering. We don't want to face those aspects of our character or traits that show us as fallible, weak, and flawed. But for Joseph's brothers and for many of us today, the primary way that we find healing and transformation through our wrong is by being willing to face it head on. Noted African-American author and activist James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And middle family and... America as a whole, there are some things that we have to face. Jackie mentioned a couple of weeks ago that our staff spent five weeks of this year diving deep into a book, uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And Amanda and I will be presenting the book today in our final leadership lab. And as she said, even if you haven't read the book or if you, uh, if you don't know anything about it, you're still welcome to attend. The thesis of the book is that people who identify as white regardless of their political, economic, religious, educational status, or even in the most progressive circles, work almost unconsciously 
to maintain a system of white superiority and cultural dominance. When white fragility is triggered by some form of perceived racial discomfort, white people utilize a variety of covert and overt tools to maintain power and restore equilibrium. Conversations about affordable housing and gentrification, bail reform and mass incarceration, safer schools and who gets access to them are just some of the ways that this plays out in our public life. I once had a colleague, um, a white colleague, who told me that gentrification wasn't so bad because it brought great resources and restaurants into the neighborhood. I said to him I wasn't surprised that he felt that way because all of those services were designed to help people like him feel more comfortable in the neighborhood. <laughs> then he, he got it. Middle family, if you've been here for more than five minutes, you know that we are a community that prides itself on welcoming every person, every culture, every belief system, every identity that's rooted in love. Love, period, is who we are. But we're also growing in understanding that being multicultural and multi-ethnic is not enough. Even with an amazingly dynamic black woman as our senior minister leading our way, the culture of whiteness and white dominance are still at play in our ranks every day. Just because we worship together and sing together in the choir and serve in leadership together or are involved in interracial relationships, it doesn't mean that we're committed to the work of racial justice and dismantling white supremacy. Welcoming people of different cultures is easy. Working to rid ourselves of ingrained values of superiority and systems that oppress our siblings is where the real work begins. Miller, we are a beautifully diverse family and there is great love shared among us and among you. But if we really want this family to grow, to heal, to be the agents of true radical love, we've also got to grow in our understanding of what it means to be anti-racist. I will confess that the conversations we had as, as a staff and the subsequent changes we've attempted to make about how we relate to each other have been harder for us than anyone expected. But it's the work that we as a staff have to do. We have to address the truth of the offenses and the racial violence we level against each other here in Middle Church before we can begin to transform the world around us outside of Middle Church. And the way we do that is the same invitation that Joseph gave to his brothers. Come closer. Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy and the founder of the Legacy, excuse me, the uh, Equal Justice Initiative and the Legacy Museum, uh, which our youth visited this past year and we'll talk about later, says this. He says, he believes that if we want to find the power to change the world, we must get proximate to another suffering and to understand the nuanced experiences of those who experience injustice and equality and inequality. Stephen believes that when we allow ourselves to be shielded and disconnected from those who are vulnerable and disfavored, 
we lose our effectiveness. But proximity is a pathway through which we learn the kind of things we need to know to make healthier communities and to make middle a healthier community of faith. Before his brothers could fully enjoy the blessings and the comfort that Joseph had to offer them, before they could get free of the hate and the shame that they'd held in their hearts all those years, before they could experience reconciliation and forgiveness, they had to come closer to the one that they wronged. They had to feel his pain, to see his tears and suffering, the suffering that they had caused, and to make a personal commitment not to walk the path of hate and jealousy and violence again. Dr. Alphanetta Wines, a womanist pastor and theologian, writes, Reconciliation requires facing and telling the truth, no matter how difficult or painful it may be. In today's world, this is part of the problem that people often miss. They want reconciliation without the work of facing and dealing with the truth. The truth about the past, the truth about the present, and the truth about the future. There can be no healing, no moving forward until the wounds of the past and their effect on the present and the future are openly and honestly and truthfully addressed. Why stay stuck in the past when the truth can set us free. Before the brothers could enjoy the physical riches of food and water, they had to address the spiritual poverty that existed in their hearts. They had to face the truth of how they had wronged their brother and that although he met them with grace and forgiveness for their relationship to change, they had to change. This is the power of proximity. And some of us have been struggling with the issue of confronting and questioning the truth uh, for the past few weeks. And as a black gay man, I'm going to take a moment of privilege uh, to just touch on the events of the last month as it relates to Jesse Smollett. I know there are many of us who are here today and watching online who've been following closely the developments of this tragedy. And it is a tragedy. As one of the few prominent, out, black, same gender loving actors right now, many of us have aligned ourselves, our sense of identity, our credibility, our reputation, and our success along with his. When it was reported that he had been attacked, many of us also felt that we had been attacked. And we were traumatized by the very real threat that this could and did happen to someone that we care for a member of our family. When we look at the violence in the queer community, we know that just as in other places in society, people of color face an undue burden. Last year alone, at least 24 of our transgender siblings were killed here in the U.S. An overwhelming 82% of them were women of color. So friends, the threat is real. And although we may identify as part of the black or queer family, we are not responsible for justifying Jesse's actions. We cannot explain his reasoning, the pain or need he felt to do what he allegedly did. And believe me, I still hope that it's not true. But if he is to be prosecuted for making a false statement, I have to question the justice system that allows this to happen and that what's at work here. 
If Jesse goes to jail, what about the numerous men and women who have made fraudulent claims against countless black and brown people? This isn't just about Barbecue Becky or the Starbucks manager who called police on black men while they were waiting for a, a business meeting. What about the people who called in false claims on Tamir Rice and John Crawford and their lives ended up being gunned down by police? What about Carolyn Bryant who died last year but lived 65 years in seclusion after she admitted to lying in a Mississippi courtroom about what happened between her and a 13-year-old Emmett Till that ultimately led to him being pistol-whipped, mutilated, shot, and gunned down in one of the most notorious civil rights era's lynchings. If Jesse is to be prosecuted for a claim where no one was harmed, shouldn't there certainly be prosecution for a claim where people lose their lives? Mm. Come closer, Joseph says. Come closer. Listen to the truth of what you have done to enslave me and to separate me from my people and from my family. Come, see the impact of your internalized hate against who I am. Come, see how the intent of your jealousy was to wound me, but it made both of us, the impact of that was that it made both of us small. Because only by seeing the truth, both yours and mine, can you begin to change what you have been and what you have done. In our, in our first worship service this morning, we celebrated the baptism. And it was one of those things that I love about the sacrament is that whether you're a parent or not, we as members of the kingdom of God, the family of God, say that this child is God's child. And we share in the responsibility of creating a safe, loving, welcoming environment where they can grow to know themselves as God's beloved. For us, middle, that means joining with parents and godparents, aunts and uncles, correcting our past actions and recreating a world where every child is taught to love all equally but also not instilling in them any belief that because of the color of their skin or the gender that they identify with, that they are more deserving of care and protection and rights over another child. When we come closer and get proximate to our siblings, to our brothers and sisters, we are reminded that each of us is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and that the love we share with them has the exact same contours of the love that we know for ourselves. And if we can't love our siblings for who they are, we might be missing out on the depth of love that God has for us. Middle, will you come closer? Will you come closer to the God who made you and sees you as you are? And to help us see each other as being made in God's image, regardless of the color of our skin or how we walk in this world? Can we bless those who are around us who've been persecuted and wounded and take responsibility for the role that we have in doing that, proclaiming the truth of our pain and the pain that we've inflicted on others so that truly one day we can be the people 
in the family of God. May it be so. Amen.